we are going to not um, meander. We are going to sprint through the Word of God this morning. You know me, I like to I like to just break things down into little bite-sized nuggets and then kind of break them down again and break them down again. I, I love to go in depth, but we're going to fly over. We're going to do a survey through the scripture. If you'll notice on the screen, it says the house of God. And I thought it was an appropriate message for this morning because here we are in what we call the house of God. But We'll see uh, what the Word of God has to say about the house of God. We're going to go all the way back 3,500 years in the Scripture to the days of Moses and the children of Israel having been delivered from Egypt and uh, the interaction that Moses had with God as they were now wandering in the wilderness uh, on the other side of the Red Sea when God had parted it and all of that. So we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 25 where God essentially says to Moses, make me a house, make me a dwelling place. Uh, Exodus 25 verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering. And I love that, that he's saying, you know, again, in the New Testament, it's not begrudgingly, but it's with a willing heart. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the Greek word in the New Testament for that is hilarion. It's the word we get hilarious from. It's like, I just laugh as I give. Lord, it's, you got more than, you know. And so they took this offering. We're not going to go into that. We're going to drop down to verse 8, verses 3 through 7. It was all of their finest stuff. It wasn't leftovers. They gave this offering, uh, the people of Israel. They gave so much that further in the book of Exodus, God had to instruct Moses, tell them to stop. Uh, that's every preacher's dream. But no, seriously, it, it, he said, just tell them, tell them to give it up. You know, they've given so much. We've got way more than we need, and they're still coming with the goods. And so in verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. This is, I mean, other than the burning bush there in Exodus chapter 3, when before God uses Moses to deliver Israel and all, this is where God's heart is expressed. It's the first mention of God saying, I want to dwell with my people. And it's significant. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. We'll look at that as we go along. Accordingly to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So he, God says, I want you to make me this house. It'll be a portable house because you're going to be wandering for 40 years out here in the desert. And, and it, the way that he set it up was it was going to be this tabernacle. We've got a slide for it, I think. Yeah. Uh, if you look, it's, it was a, a 75 by 150 foot fenced in yard. And in this thing, when you went in, the outer court was what it was called. And this was the, this predates the temple in Jerusalem. It was the portable dwelling place of God. There was then, uh, if you look at, there's an altar of sacrifice, which is in the middle of the yard coming in through the gate. And then there was a, a brass laver where they would wash. And then they would go into what was called the holy place. And that was 15 by 15 by 30 feet. And that was the front part of that building. And in there was a 
brass menorah, or, or, or it was a golden lampstand, or, or bronze menorah, yeah, lampstand. And then there was a table of showbread on the other side, and then there was an altar of incense, and, and then there was a, a laver, a, a thing that held incense in there. And then in the last room, and, and interesting, guys, it goes from this outer court to the holy place to the holy of holies and the holy of holies was only used once a year and we'll talk about that in a minute but that was 15 by 15 by 15 feet had a huge thick rug that separated it because that's where the dwelling place of God would be with the ark of the covenant we'll get into that in a moment but so you you start with this outer court then you go to the holy place then you go to the holy of holies it gets more sanctified, more holy as you go. Uh, I was reading one commentator on this. He said, you know, it's, you can liken that to us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's the, 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 the body, and then there's the soul, and then there's the spirit. And as you go, you, you go deeper with God in that sense. And so God said, build me this thing, and he gave them an exact pattern to build it by. So now in verse 10, God says, here's what I want you to put in it. And it's this Ark of the Covenant. And yeah, and Raiders of the Lost Ark and all that stuff. Um, but uh, he says, and they will make me an Ark of Acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So he's saying, build me a box. It would be 45 inches long, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide. That's translating cubits to inches, so that just to bless your heart. Um, verse 11, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. And the two rings shall be on one side and two on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. This is not just a regular box. This is a pretty special deal. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them and the poles shall be in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark of the testimony which I give to you or into the ark the testimony which I give you and that would be the ten commandments the tablets of stone and then a jar of manna and Aaron's rod which had budded the, the almond blossom rod that he had and that would go into the ark and so a picture here a of, uh, artist rendition of what that would look like. And the different ones have slightly different variations, but you have these two cherubim, these two angelic beings that are on the lid. The mercy seat is what it's called, the, the lid of this ark. And he says, and you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. So it'll basically fit on top of the box. And you'll make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Listen to this, verse 22. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So God says, build this building, and in this building put this box. But it wouldn't be any regular, normal box. It would be uh, this thing, that this ark, this ark of the covenant that would go into the holy of holies 
Why would he do that? Why would he say, I want to dwell among men and women. I want to dwell among my people and yet separate himself to this extent because of sin. Because humanity had not... Uh, he would implement the sacrificial system where they did animal sacrifices for a covering for sin but it would never eliminate sin and and you've got to realize that God is consumingly holy he is above everything and he is is pure as relates to infinity and we're not and so his desire, his love, his character is such that he wants to dwell with people he wants to dwell with his creation and yet he must remain separate at this time And so he says, build me a house and then build me a box. And then once a year would be the only time when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies to go and offer sacrifices for the sins of the people that were committed in ignorance. So he's he's separating himself still, but he's still wanting to be with his people. I want you to catch that. Uh, He says, I'll meet with you, Moses, and I'll speak with you. Exodus chapter 40, uh, moving on here, like I said, uh, sprinting forward. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up a screen on the court gate. So this is the 75 by 150 foot area. Uh, and Moses finished the work. So they did exactly as God had shown them to do. They did according to the pattern that God gave Moses and they finished this building this box and this yard, this fenced yard. And I'm using common terms, but it was really, that's what it was, except it was consecrated to God. This would be his dwelling place. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because of the cloud that rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they prepared this thing according to God's design because he requested it, because he wanted to dwell among men. And then the the glory of the Lord descends on this thing as they finish it up. Whenever the cloud, verse 36, uh, uh, chapter 40, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God's instruction was, when I move, you move. When I rest, you rest. That was his instruction. And I think about that so often in in. Uh, terms today how well-intentioned people over and over and over again through history have said well I'm going to go do this thing and I'm going to invite God to come along sometimes that's uh, he's gracious and he will get with that but mostly if we're trying to get God to get on board with our thing it's not going to come to much he says identify my first Sunday here in October of 2017 uh, was was talking about that as far as the vision for us as a church is, is we're not going to just go out there and start just lashing out and trying to figure out ways that we can do things and then ask God to come and join us. We want to prayerfully, um, patiently identify what God is doing and then join him in that. 
Because that's when his power flows. That's when his equipping comes. It doesn't flow the other direction. And it's well-intentioned. I'm not impugning anyone's motives in that. But really, we do well to wait on the Lord, to see what he wants to do. I think about this place. I think it started with Ron on his phone one Sunday night after service. I'm not going to pick on you, Ron. Um, but I think about that. It's like, you know, one, one and, and it was like, hey, Red Hills is moving to the high school. And it was like, bing, you know, it was, and, and the Lord from there brought it about because we identified again prayerfully what is God doing in this we're looking for a building we're we're going to suffocate with our rent over there I mean it was just it was a, just a wonderful move of God to get on board to identify what he's doing and then to follow him in it and that's what his instructions to Israel were and again as we see the pattern that God sets forth we do well to apply that to our lives so I've got a couple of photos here, or a couple of artist renderings, actually. This is what the tabernacle would have looked like, an artist rendering of what it would look like. Look like. You see on the, the right side, there's the, 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 the altar where they would sacrifice the animals, and on the left side, the cloud over the, the tent. Uh, they called it the tent of meeting and all. And then at night, they had, uh, here's an artist rendering of what it would look like at night, uh, just to have this, and it would be in the sight of all of Israel. The whole nation, one and a half, two million people, whatever it was, would be able to look and they'd see this cloud by day or this pillar of fire by night. What a spectacular view that would have been and a reminder that God is with us. He is in this. And as then the the cloud would begin to move off, the people would be following and they would literally be following the Lord. What a great scene. I want to move forward now into Leviticus uh, chapter 16. We're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Now, God had set this thing up for the tabernacle, and we're, we're going to trace this through, and, and uh, I will do my best to finish this up uh, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but we're going to, going to go and look at Leviticus. So what is it that God intended for this ark in this Holy of Holies? And what it was, was once a year, the high priest would be the one who was appointed. There was only one guy could go in once a year and make atonement for the sins of the people. And so it, it, we still, the Jews still celebrate and observe this day today. It's called Yom Kippur. And it's the Day of Atonement. As a matter of fact, when Syria and the other nations rolled on Israel in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War, they attacked Israel on Yom Kippur because they figured, well, they'll be on holiday, so we'll go in there and mop up quickly. Well, God had other plans, but uh, in Leviticus 16, we see, Then he shall take a censer. Now, this is, this is Aaron. Uh, the high priest, Aaron was the first high priest, and it says that he'll take a censer full of burning coals from the fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and brick it inside the veil. So he's going from the holy place to the holy of holies. So he's going to the very inner part of this mobile temple, if you will. And he'll put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Very, very important. God had very precise instructions that were to be observed in this, and the penalty for not observing it was death. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Aaron's sons went in and they offered strange fire, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, I see those Hebrew words goofed up, but 
they went in and fire consumed them. They didn't have a good day. They tried to go in and do it in their own strength and in their own way. And God, they violated what God said to do. And the penalty, again, was death because they were violating his holiness, trying to come in without going through the prescribed method that God had set forth. And so it says uh, in verse 14, it takes some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat of the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So again, he would the, the high priest would go in. First, he would go in and he would cleanse himself. He would take off his outer garments and then he would go back in to do to make atonement. And he would take the blood of this bull and he would drip it on the east side of the mercy seat of the ark. And then before the ark, and again, seven times, he even had to count the times that he would do it. It was that precise. Now, all of this is leading up to demonstrating the need for some kind of resolution to all of this, because this was God's provision, and yet it could only bring a covering for sin. It could never eliminate sin. And so it's very important that we understand this was then, and we have the cross now. We'll get to that as we go along. Uh, but these people had to go through a, a lot of hoops in order to satisfy the holy requirements of a holy God. So after this, and we're going to just skip forward. Uh, like I said, we're sprinting here. Uh, we're going to go up to the book of Joshua chapter 3 because after this, this, when the tabernacle was originated, when it came to be, they, again, Israel followed the, the Lord's presence around in the wilderness for 40 years. And they faithfully carried out the ordinances that God had set forth for the sacrificial system and for uh, God to dwell with his people. But it was dwelling in a limited way. So in Joshua chapter 3, we see the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan River. This is Israel entering into the promised land now. They are coming in to, to occupy, to dwell in the land. And so it says, And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So as soon as the priests who were carrying the ark, as soon as their feet hit, the edge of the river, the river stopped up. You've heard of God parting the Red Sea. Well, he did the same thing with the Jordan River. He piled the waters up and the whole nation crossed over on dry ground. It was again symbolic of the power and the presence of God in a limited sense. Again, he's using this box, he's using this ark uh, to separate himself from the people. And then in Joshua chapter 18, they moved the ark to a place called Shiloh. And this is where the, the tabernacle was going to be located. They would get rid of the tent uh, eventually. And they built, actually, they, they built kind of a, a brick and mortar building. Uh, seen the ruins, uh, been to Shiloh a couple times and the ruins there. The ark would be in residence in Shiloh for 369 years until Israel really botched it. Uh, so in, in Joshua 18, it says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh, and they set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. So they're walking in obedience to the Lord. God is subduing the land before them. Things are going well. Well, a lot can happen in 369 years. And Israel's heart kind of grew cold towards the Lord. They one of the things that we have to guard ourselves on is to reduce the things of God 
to sort of machinations. I, I, I shared before what happens is God will task us with a certain thing, and it's good. He has something for each of us to do. We are called to have fellowship with God, and out of that fellowship comes fruitful service to God. And so what he will do is he'll task us with things, and then as time goes by, uh, we can get into sort of allowing that task to become a routine. Well, now it's no longer God that's motivating me to do this. It's just what we do. It's just what I do. And we can get into this place where we're just kind of going through the motions. Uh, I, I reckon that to being about as important as getting a birthday card from your dentist, okay? So we can kind of get into this place where it's just, it's just how we go along. Well, after a while, that routine now can become embedded and we can become kind of hardened in our heart. We've totally moved away from the power of God being instrumental in this thing and now it's become a ritual that's what happens with wineskins that's what happens with churches all the time Jesus pours out new wine out of old wineskins because they become rigid and hardened and routine driven rather than Holy Spirit driven God forbid that we become that kind of a body. We pray for the freshness of the power of the Holy Spirit to be in and through us as we go along and we do what he set before us to do. That's the key. That could only happen because of the cross up until and through these people's days, it couldn't come about. Now I'm going to summarize First Samuel a few chapters here really quickly. What happens in First Samuel chapter 4, uh, Eli is the priest. He has two sons that are creeps, Hophni and Phinehas. It says they were sleeping with women at the door to the tabernacle. Not a good thing for the, high, for the priest to do. And they were, I mean, they were really creepy guys. But Eli allowed it. Mm, not going to go. That could rabbit trail in parenting, but I'm not going to. But <laughs> pretty obvious. So... The Israelite, Israel was going to war with the Philistines. They were a coastal people. They were all along the, the, the coast of, of, of the land. And so they're up in the northern part of the country. Uh, and opposite uh, Shiloh was a place called Ebenezer. And uh, Israel was camped at Ebenezer. The Philistines were camped at a place called Aphek. And uh, so... They go to war with, with uh, the Philistines and they lose. And so somebody goes, hey... I got an idea. Let's weaponize the Ark. And that's what they did. They tried to weaponize the Ark of the Covenant. They figured, well, if God is in there, then we carry the Ark into battle, then we're good, man. Those guys, we're going to clean house. And so they actually go back to Shiloh. They grab the Ark, Hophni and Phinehas, the creepy sons of Eli, go and they carry this thing off to Ebenezer. They go to battle with the Philistines, and they just get creamed by the Philistines. It's a great defeat. Thousands of, of Israelite soldiers killed. And the Philistines capture the Ark. Now, Phineas and Hophni were killed in the battle. And uh, uh, Phineas's wife, it says, and again, just summarizing, his wife is in, she goes into labor. She's so stressed out, she goes into early labor. She dies in childbirth, but not before she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has left Israel. Oh, boy, I've just got so much I want to cover. I, I just want to go on these things. But anyway, so now Israel has this sort of this nickname Ichabod because the glory of God has left. They took matters into their own hands. They tried to carry it out in the arm of the flesh and God wasn't in it. As a matter of fact, he left. 
First Samuel chapter 5, God judges the Philistines for taking the ark. So he's judging Israel for bringing the ark up there and trying to use it as a weapon to begin with. And then he judges the Philistines for grabbing the ark. And uh, so the, the Philistines decided they're going to take uh, the ark down to Ashdod. And it was a little town in, in um in Philistia that uh, so they take this ark down to Ashdod they set it up next to their phony god Dagon the fish god and if you uh, uh, remember the story in the Old Testament the, the next morning Dagon was fallen over and they set it back up the next morning he's fallen over and he's all broken up and so they think well guess we're not going to do that again and so about that time they God strikes them with tumors and <laughs> I remember, I just as a side note, I used to study in L through college, and, and prior, I studied out of the New American Standard Bible, and I, was, I remember studying this in Bible college, and the guy got in and said, and, and the Lord smote them with tumors. And I'm reading my Bible, and it says, no, it doesn't. It says he smote them with hemorrhoids. And I remember thinking, I don't know what it was, but it must have hurt. And so... Anyway, he he strikes these guys with, with with tumors or hemorrhoids or whatever it was, and death. I mean, he starts he starts to take these people down, and so they say, well, maybe it's not a good idea that we have the ark at Ashdod, and so they take it to a place called Akron, and the people at Akron are going, what are you doing? You're bringing it to you're going to kill us all, and and God strikes them with tumors, and they start to die. So they decide, well, probably not a good idea. We'll take it to Shemesh, and. Now, when they take it to Shemesh, uh, yes, Ashdod to Gath, Gath to, yeah, all right, I left Gath out. So it goes from Ash, Ashdod to Gath, tumors and death, Gath to Ekron, tumors and death, and then uh, Ekron to Beth Shemesh, which is now back in Israel. It took seven months. This, the ark took a seven-month detour and left a, just a wake of destruction because these guys were treating as common the holy things of God. And so the seventh month joyride ends at Beth Shemesh. The people look into the ark there, and they're not consecrated to do anything with the ark. And 50,000 Israelites die there. So not a good chapter in Israel's history. Again, God just wanted to have a place to dwell with his people. And it was his idea. And the people getting in there and messing with it you ever hear the term, of course you have, don't try to fix something that works. These guys are trying to fix something that works. God had it all laid out. He said, do it my way, you can know my will. And how often has that been the case in our lives? Do it my way, you can know my will. If you want to do it your way, guess what? You're on your own. And it's because he loves us. And he loves us enough to know that there are boundaries that he sets. And so, anyway, in First Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines return the ark. And in First Samuel 7, the ark goes to a place in Israel called Kiriath-Jerim. Now, when uh, I was in Israel uh, a few years, probably four years ago now, um, with a group of pastors, we stayed at a, a kibbutz. Uh, called Yad Hashmanah, and it was the only Christian kibbutz in the nation of Israel. It was literally a hundred yards across a little ravine from Kiriath Jerem, and I would walk out of my room every morning and go, wow, 
That's where they had the ark for 20 years. It, come, it came back into the, the, the country, came back to Israel, but it actually stalled. And they, they consecrated a guy to take care of it there at Kiriath-Jerim, but it was only a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And then 20 years later, um, uh, King David takes the ark into the old city of David. Now we're tracing this again. The reason why we're kind of galloping through is I want you to understand that there's a history to this presence of God among men, okay? It, it, and we've started back, now we've come up probably, you know, a uh, thousand years, 700 years. Uh, and then Solomon builds the first temple, all right? So now we're going to First Kings chapter 8. I'm going to read a couple of verses there. It says, And the priest brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now, this is where Solomon is dedicating the temple. Uh, this was a huge deal for Israel. So he's dedicating the temple, and he's bringing the ark now from the city of David, where it had been in a tent, and they had been going through the stuff there. Uh, he's bringing it actually into the, the Solomon's temple, which was a glorious, glorious temple. Uh, the Every report in the Bible is that this thing was, it was really something. And so they, they bring it in, and, and Solomon does this whole convocation there. Uh, and they, the, it says that the cherubim sweat, spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark with its carrying pole. So inside the Holy of Holies in the temple now, there were a little bit different dimensions. It was, I think, 70 feet high. But uh, in the Holy of Holies, they, they had the similar deal. It was the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. They put this ark in there, but they had two giant statues of the cherubim, the angelic beings, one on the left, one on the right, the ark in the middle with the cherubim on that. And so they bring this thing into the temple, again, so that they can seal it off with a veil, to only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. When man could go and, uh, and the high priest would go and make atonement for the sins of the people. And, and so uh, it says in verse 27, Solomon, he's praying and he's, he's dedicating the temple here, but he also says something kind of prophetic. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. As he's praying to God, how much less this temple that I have built. So Solomon had a good grasp on who God was. And he knew that God's presence in that ark, in that temple, or in that tabernacle, that that was, yes, he was really there, that the glory of the Lord was there above the mercy seat of the ark. But it was largely for us to have a way to identify with him because he is so vast that he wanted to give us a representation of him. All of these things, by the way, if we had the time, I mean, again, we're racing through, but if, if I would love sometime to do an in-depth study on the Ark of the Covenant, an in-depth study on the tabernacle. Everything about these buildings points to Jesus Christ. Everything. The types and the shadows are so rich. Uh, some are very obvious. Some really get down into the details. Uh, but suffice this morning that as we're tracing this through, now we've had this ark, it started out in the desert, it went across the Jordan River with Israel, it goes up to Shiloh for 369 years, it goes off to war, they capture it, they bring it down around the south end of the country, bring it back in, and then it comes back to Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years, and now it goes to Jerusalem where it's in the old city, the city of David, and now after Solomon builds the temple, this same box... The same one 
is now put in the temple. As Israel now begins to uh, celebrate the fact that they have a permanent house for God. God gave Solomon a warning. I'm not going to read it, but he did give him a warning when he consecrated the temple. He said, look, Solomon, I'm here and I am blessing your efforts. I'm paraphrasing. That's what he said. He said, but, but let me tell you something. You depart from me, I'll depart from you. Very sober. Very stern. Because God must rep- be represented as he is. Not as we want him to be. Not as we picture him to be. Not as we paint him to be. A lot of that out there, folks. But he wants to be represented truthfully as he is. He says, and it'll come to pass when you're multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will will say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord, uh, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall they shall it be made any more. That following the warning that God gave to Solomon, he said, "Look, you depart, I'll depart." They departed, he departed. Okay, uh, in. 569, the Babylonians came. Uh, I'm sorry, it's 586. Yeah. The Babylonians came. They thrashed Israel. They, thrashed, they destroyed the temple. It wasn't up for very long. And then Jeremiah, during those days after Solomon, when they had the wicked kings, you know, they had a succession of, of evil kings and all. And they came, the, the, the Babylonians came, and they, they just wiped the temple mound. And they destroyed the temple. Uh, they left some foundations, but there was not much left at all. It was pretty well decimated. And so Jeremiah prophesies, and he says, look, they're going to even forget about the ark here. Um, uh, he, he says uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3, that's where he said, I got ahead of myself there. It'll come to pass that you're, when you're multiplied and increased in the land, when you come back into the land after your captivity, remember Israel went into 70 years of captivity, the ark disappears at this point it's gone and and it's never coming back at least in that form and God said they'll say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord it won't even come to their minds they won't remember it they won't visit it and it will not be made again so God was serious about this to the point where he fulfilled the warning that he gave to Solomon he said I want to dwell with my people but I will dwell with them according to my rules, not yours. They broke them. They profaned God's presence in the temple. And God removed his presence and judged Israel. So Solomon's temple was destroyed. Uh, After their captivity, there was a guy named Zerubbabel that came back and he rebuilt the temple. Uh, But Zerubbabel's temple was nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. And there was no ark. There was not an ark in the next two temples, Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple. And so the prophecy that Jeremiah gave came to be. The people didn't even question it. By the time Jesus came onto the scene, there wasn't even a mention of the ark. You'll notice it's conspicuously absent from the New Testament narrative. And then there were 400 years of silence where God got quiet. After Malachi prophesied, 
the 400 years between the Testaments. We call it the intertestamental period. It's where there was no canonization of Scripture. There are some good books, the, the apocryphal books and all, and, and all that. But, but this essentially was, there, God was very quiet. There were no prophets coming up. Uh, the, the, the next prophet would be a guy by the name of John. And he baptized people. And he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he was the one when God re-engaged with Israel that came to, to make a way for the Lord, for Messiah. So uh, from there we go to John chapter 1. And now we're in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that Word is He tabernacled among us. Guess what, gang? The tabernacle's back. But it's not a house with a box, it's a person. And we beheld His glory. So. God had this whole deal set up in the tabernacle of old that his glory would be beheld. And there's no mistake of John's choice of words in this. He is stating plainly the tabernacle is back. And he's there to behold his glory. We behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. So God has changed things up. It's no longer an external, but an internal temple. Jesus being the temple of God when he came. In John chapter 4, when he's talking with a woman in Samaria, the Samaritan woman, he says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, up in uh, place called Shechem uh, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father in other words it's not going to be a, a geographical physical place to worship verse 24 God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth so now the tabernacle of God is among men in the person of Jesus Christ and now people are beholding his glory. And now he's giving instruction that it's not going to be a physical place anymore. Uh, not, not in the sense of a building with a box. So Jesus comes, he fulfills his ministry, and they put him on the cross and at the crucifixion. There at three o'clock in the afternoon, as his life was waning, Jesus uh, died on the cross. And in Matthew 27, verse 51, it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. No longer would the temple be effective. Oh, they could repair the veil but they couldn't turn back what God had done they profaned the temple the religious leaders of Jesus' day were profaning it 
We've talked about that in other studies. And so what God did was simply remove the temple from being a useful tool for him, for the people, to sacrifice, to be able to come and to have atonement for sin. Jesus became the atonement for sin. Jesus fulfilled every single aspect of the temple. I wish we had time to go into the book of Hebrews, to go into all of the different things that Jesus fulfilled that had to do with the priestly service of the temple and the presence of God. Now the presence of God was among men. And what did man do? Murdered him. Put him on a cross. Hung him up. But it didn't stop him in John chapter 20. We covered this when we celebrated the resurrection, but I'm going to cover it again. This is important. In the tomb, on Sunday morning, Mary and the others went to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, we see something interesting here. It says in verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And there she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. What's significant about that? Do you remember the Day of Atonement? The high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood seven times on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant with an angelic angelic being on one end and an angelic being on the other. That tomb became the Ark of God for just a little while. As Jesus' blood drained out of him, there were seven points where the blood of the covenant touched that mercy seat in that tomb. From his head with the crown of thorns, from his right hand, his left hand, his right foot, his left foot, the spear in the side, and from his back where they had flogged him. Seven points where the blood was spilled for you, for me. As Jesus fulfilled what it is to be the house of God, as Jesus went to that cross to be the atonement for sin, no longer would it be once a year and have to be done perpetually, it's once for all. That we enjoy the blessing You're simply believing, repenting of sin, saying, Lord, here am I. You may have been a Christian for a long time, and perhaps the Lord's touching your heart this morning. The house of God is not this place. Uh, We're blessed that we have a tent for the temple. But the dwelling place of God now, because Jesus went to the cross and he went to the tomb and he resurrected from the dead, now the dwelling place of God, because in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and following, we see that the Holy Spirit was given. And Jesus said, if I, if I, we've been in John 16, if I don't go, the helper can't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And now the temple of God is you is me. God forbid that we live a life that profanes it. But I want to I encourage you folks this morning. 
His love is poured out. It was his love back when Israel was out in the desert. And he said, I want to have a place to dwell with my people. Build me a house. It was his love that was with them when they went into the land in 369 years where they carried out all of the ordinances that were associated with it up in Shiloh until they tried to take things into their own hands and they just thrashed what God was doing. But he came back and he visited them once again as they built the temple and his glory once again descended on that place. And they profaned it. And he left. And he got quiet. And then Jesus came. They profaned him. Put him on a cross. All of this for the house of God. You are the house of God. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. Folks, this is a new chapter in our church's history. It's a new chapter in our lives. I've been so moved uh, just by coming into this place, by knowing that we have a, a new place, that God's doing a new work. And I just it, today was just a reminder to me that, that, that this is a place to worship, and we're so blessed, but... This is the house of God. That he dwells among men. That he wants to work in us and then through us as we reach out to a messed up, mixed up, dying world that has no answers. As ambassadors of Christ, we are the ones, we are the ones who have been given the oracles of God we are the ones who have the answers to people enslaved to whatever it is, whether it's sex or alcohol or drugs or pornography, whatever it is. The answer is in Jesus coming in, cleansing that vessel, making that person a temple for his use. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless you. Thanks for being here.